Buenos dias, Grace. <laughs> so, there you go, David. Take that one. Uh, oh, good morning. Uh, it is uh, a delight to be here together, to be in the house of the Lord as we are studying what it means to be stewards of all of life. And we've talked for the past couple of weeks as we've looked at the concept of stewardship and as we've all, I think, admitted, um, when we think of the term stewardship, the first thought that comes to mind is money. And we've looked at our time, we've looked at our talent, but we can't simply overlook and just say that it is all of life without highlighting finances. Finances are earthly treasure and money, and some people don't really like to talk about money, especially in church. Matter of fact, it's been cited all too often that the reason some people don't attend church is because the church always is talking about money. But that's how Satan tries to distort it, and can even distort sometimes churches, the wrong focus. But it is a reality, and we live in a world where there is money. I mean, Jesus talked about money. Did you know that? He talked a great deal about money. As a matter of fact, some scholars have estimated that 15% of what Jesus taught about was about your money and earthly treasure. 15%. Did you know that that is more? He talked more about finances then than he did about heaven and hell combined. Now that, that should be sobering. And that should reveal God's understanding of what money is and what it, how we should view it. And as we're talking today, we're going to be looking into God's treasure in that and seeing what, how do we get the joy of that treasure. See, I don't know if about you, but when I was a kid, I enjoyed having treasure maps. Did you ever, did you ever enjoy that, watching like a mystery and when you were a child? And, and you would see uh, a show on TV where the children discovered this map, and then they would try to find it. I remember even making up treasure maps as a kid. And then, of course, that's reignited when you see movies like National Treasure, where there's this treasure map that's hidden in plain sight for everybody to see. And it's gone overlooked over time. And and it has this big, giant treasure behind it. And everybody's looking for it. In our world today, I mean, we have, everyone is using some type of treasure map. They're pursuing something in which they believe they can find joy. Because it's not about the treasure per se. It's what the, the treasure represents. And that's the finding of joy, the finding of contentment. And people are looking at all different kinds of maps and all different kinds of books and all different kinds of philosophies and all these different kinds of things. But we have to go to God's word and say, what is God's treasure map? What pathway has God laid out for each one of us that if we pursue it, we will find great joy and contentment? So I would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, hopefully you have one, uh, to the book of Matthew, the first gospel. And we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be reading from verses 19 through verse 34. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And it's our tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand um, to honor God as we read His Word together. Matthew 6, 19 through 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the field, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we know that you are the Lord of all. And Lord, today as we go into your word and we see what your treasure map is for our finances, Lord, I pray that each one of us might be open to the truths therein, that we might make the necessary changes that you bring to our attention, that we might glorify you and you might be honored in us. We ask your blessing on our time together now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, before we actually get to dive into our text, we have a lot of verses to cover. We're going to do more skipping through different sections and highlighting different aspects of it. But before we even get into the word, we have to make sure that we analyze and understand what are our thoughts regarding finances from the beginning. Because undoubtedly, just like you do in marriage, you bring many ideas of what marriage should be like, what roles you should have when you enter into marriage. And for those who are in, as we're dealing with finance, there's a lot of different popular thoughts that are out there today in regards to our finances. And the church has been behind some of it. Different churches have highlighted different things. And the first is this. Let me throw this up here on the, we must explore these prominent thoughts regarding our things. And the first one is this. This is how the church has presented it so often. Some people believe that if you're a Christian, you need to be poor. Have you ever heard that? Or maybe you've ever wondered that yourself? I mean, some of you are like, well, it's true. <laughs> Because I am. <laughs> but there's been that thought. And, and it's easy to look at the scriptures and see that. I mean, we can see that Jesus had, he was the son of man. He had no place to lay his head. He tells the rich young ruler to sell all that he has and come and follow him. I mean, he traveled with a group of individuals, the 12 individuals, that they were, had an itinerant ministries. They were traveling back and forth around. They weren't known uh, to be men of great means or wealth. I mean, they were in business. But even Matthew leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. I know when I first became a Christian, I thought that's what you had to do, is that we, we just said, hey, it's, I'm, I'm abandoning it all, and I'm going to follow Jesus. And I thought we had to be to be poor. And there's other scriptures that we could even look at and, and see that type of idea and where it could be drawn out. First Timothy chapter 6 says it very clearly. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? 
Or the author of Hebrews even tells us, keep your life free from the love of money in Hebrews chapter 13. And Paul also taught the elders to be that anyone who is trying to or aspire to the office of overseer or elder, that to guide the church, that they were to be free from the love of money. And the Pharisees were known as lovers of money in Luke chapter 16, verse 14. And in the last days, we know that as Paul wrote to Timothy, that others will be lovers of money in 2 Timothy 3, 2. And then partner that with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. Jesus said this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's easy to see that's this thought that's there. And that's one thought that's part of it. But remember, we have to look at the entirety of Scripture and look at what it says about finances holistically. Because there are other principles there. And that's, that's probably, I mean, we can look at this side and see the poverty, but there's another side of Christianity, or so-called Christianity, that seeks to highlight the other side and says that we are to have prosperity, a great deal of prosperity. And you have this in the wealth, we call it sometimes the word of faith movement, the, the health and wealth movement, also called the name it and claim it, that God wants you to be healthy, that God wants you to drive a Cadillac, that God doesn't want you to be poor. And you hear preachers on television espouse this type of theology all the time, that God wants us to be wealthy. Now, Time Magazine did an article about this uh, some time ago, and just about the idea of prosperity, and they, they summarized it in this way. They said, in a nutshell, this movement suggests that, that a God who loves you does not want you to be broke. Its signature verse could be John 10.10, 10, I have come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. In a time poll, matter of fact, this is in 2006, 17% of Christians surveyed said they considered themselves part of such a movement, while a full 61% that God wants people to be prosperous. So you've got the poverty on one hand, and you've got the prosperity on the other. Now how do we, how do we balance that? I mean, it seems that we go one way, the, the ship is going to tip over, and we go the other way, the the ship tips over. That's why we have to look at understanding uh, and look at this holistically and say, how does God desire us to view our finances and treasures properly? Properly. Because there is the aspect of, of being good stewards. And does God want to bless us? Yes, he does, but may not be in the way that we sometimes interpret and expect. Does God want to bless me with a Cadillac? I don't see that in Scripture. And that's very hard to justify when you see that the founder of, the, uh, of Christianity had no place to lay his head. So we have to ask ourselves the question then, what then does God want us to do with our finances? How should we view our money? I mean, God, does he, does he want me to be poor? But yet here, he, he does bless us. He even talks about bringing the full tithe into the storehouse in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, and then I will open up the windows of heaven and I will pour forth blessing upon you. So we have to say, oh, there is some aspect of prosperity and there is some aspect of poverty, but we have to be able to balance these two understandings with the full weight of God's word and let the scripture be our guide. 
as we look at this together. Now, I mentioned before, I was talking about the, how the love of money, that's why people say, oh, it's the, money is a bad thing. No, 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 it's the love of money that's a bad thing. That's that, that, that modifier. We have to see how that's fitting in. It's the, the love of money. And, and people today, in our world, especially in the United States of America, and especially in the suburbs of Chicago, have a love of money. I mean, you could testify that. Some of you could testify to it personally, to your shame. But there's others around that you, you know about it. As you're comparing yourself to your neighbors or your friends and seeing what they have and the greatest thing that they, they're driving and the, the house that they have and the, and the nice big flat screen TV that they have and, and, and they're not following God. And you go, well, what's wrong? And, and this love of money pours up within you. And, and then what we try to do is hold on to Christianity with one hand and the money with the other. The problem is, is Jesus made it quite clear. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't. It's, they're in parallel directions. There's, it's like a plane going off. You can't keep one foot on the ground. If you're on board God's plane, it's going to take off. It's futile to do anything else. So we have to be on guard to the love of money. John MacArthur writes about this. He says, rich or poor. However, the Bible warns against the deceitfulness of riches in Mark 4.19 and exhorts, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly take, makes itself wings like an eagle and flies toward heaven. He's quoting Proverbs 23.4-5. He says, In Matthew 6.24, Jesus declared, You cannot serve God and wealth. While in Luke 12, 15, he warned, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Greed characterizes unbelievers, and he gives a litany of verses, especially false teachers, and is a form of idolatry. In sharp contrast to the materialism promoted by prosperity teachers today, Jesus commanded, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, having or making money isn't wrong because God himself gives us the ability to do so. If you were ever to go and turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 18, and I would encourage you to write that verse in your margin. Just put that little initial in there. Deuteronomy 8, 18. And when you get a chance, go to that verse because it's, it's Moses writing and it's God talking to the nation of Israel and he is reminding them that it is God who has given them the ability to have and make wealth. As the verse says, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God gave you the ability to work. God gave you the ability to think. God gave you the ability to do your job. It is God that has given you all of these things. And that's why we are, to be, we are stewards of what God has given to us. So it's what we do with our money that's important. Randy Alcorn, pastor in uh, Oregon, wrote a book called The Treasure Principle, and he also read another one called Money, Possessions, and Property, I believe. And he, in his book, The Treasure Principle, he wrote this. He was flying on a plane, and he started reading Luke chapter 3. And it was the, John the Baptist is preaching to crowds of people to hear him preach, and they want to be baptized. And after they're baptized, they say, what must we do to bear fruit in keeping with repentance to show this newfound relationship that we have? What, what are we supposed to do? And he gives three pretty amazing principles that should be very interesting for all of us and apply, I believe, directly to all of us. 
He says, everyone should share clothes and food with the poor. In Luke 3.11. Tax collectors shouldn't pocket extra money. And soldiers should be content with their wages and not extort money. He speaks to these three different groups and tells them, and each one of them has to deal with the treasure and money. It's amazing to me that you think about it. That's where we see where God is in your checkbook. Is God the God of your checkbook? Is God the God of your money? That's what we have to ask ourselves. See, Jesus understood wealth better than everybody. And his words in today's passage enable us to employ a persuasive test that reveals our thoughts. So right now, here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a test that you can apply to yourself because you say, this may not apply to me. This doesn't, this doesn't apply. I don't have this problem. Where Here's the test right here. It's the definitive test that we all can employ together because I have to ask myself the same question. I'm not immune from this. I mean, as you've heard, even as John MacArthur has so nicely laid out, that it, it can hit pastors and, and, and teachers as well. And that's something that even pastors have to be on guard against. So we have to employ a persuasive test that reveals our thoughts. Let's look at verse 19 with me. And please, look right in your Bibles and look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So here's the test. We need to examine the treasure we have and its durability. That's, a, that's letter A right there. Durability. Here are some qualities that we need to ask about this treasure. Is it going to endure? Is it, is it going to last? And that's the first question. Will it decay? Where moth and rust destroy. Will it, will it decay? Can it, just, can it just wilt? And here's the second question. Will it disappear? Will it disappear? Can someone take it away from me? I think of Bernie Madoff and so many people invested with him and had all their money with him and all their treasure and then poof, thief. Broken and stole. It was all gone. And people's lives were just left. And people were committing suicide over it. They had placed their treasure. And that's something that someone could easily take away. Alcorn gives an example on how we should view our earthly finances and treasures. He writes, imagine for a moment that you're at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for the U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. As a Christian, you have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. This is the ultimate insider trading tip. Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns. Or when you die, whichever comes first. And either could happen at any time. There's nothing wrong with Confederate money as long as you understand its limits. Realizing its value is temporary should radically affect your investment strategy. To accumulate vast earthly treasures that you can't possibly hold on to for long is equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money, even though you know it's about to become worthless. And he says, lastly, according to Jesus, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong, it's plain stupid. Sobering words. 
It is plain stupid, but yet people do it every day. They continue to build their earthly kingdoms and grandiose thoughts and ideas and pictures of themselves and not knowing that when death comes, it makes everyone equal. And it's only what was done for Christ that lasts. That heavenly currency is the only one that remains. So here's the second part of the test. The first one was, will it, dis- will it decay? And the second one was, will it disappear? I mean, this is all under durability. But now we have, does it have your devotion? Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now that's actually a very bad translation when it says servant. It actually is no one can be a slave to two masters. Because, see, when one is just a servant, I mean, you can serve this person and that person, but a slave can't do that. A slave is either with one or the other. And the Bible's clear. You can't hold on to both. It's impossible. And yet that's what people do every day. And some people even try to mask their their idolatry of materialism and their earthly treasure, and they try to coat it in a form of godliness. While their heart is inwardly wicked. Does it have your devotion? Do you love it? And by implication, if you hate it, then you're, I mean, if you love one, you're going to hate the other. And here's three ways that you can examine yourself to see if you are devoted to it. First of all, it's this. Does it have your affection? Your affection. What, do you love it? You know in your heart whether or not you love it. And you have to ask yourself that question. Do I love this? Because remember, hate the one, love the other. What is the thing that you love more than the Lord? That you delight in more than the Lord? And your relationship with Him? Secondly, what is the one thing that you think you can't live without? Or what is it that commands all your attention? It commands your attention. It consumes you all the time. You're thinking about it all the time. If you're devoted to it, then it will command all of your attention. I've seen, I've seen this happen in families, marriages, educational pursuits, careers, hobbies, etc., All of their attention is centered on that one thing or that object, and they can't let it go. And there's the last part, and this is the the part that I can can guarantee, this is the last point that I'm absolutely sure about when it comes to money and God, is that you can have assurance that you can't do both. You can have absolute assurance. There's certitude. God's word is declaring it. God has decreed it. You can't do both. And there's people today that try to do both, and you can't. Your heart is either devoted to one or the other. Which is it? Which is it? That's the question that we all have to ask ourselves. We can't pull it off. So what then is God's treasure map for us? Well, here's the first one. I mean, here's what we need to do is we need to enter the pathway to your real treasure. Let's look at verse 19. As we enter into this pathway, what Jesus tells us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now Alcorn writes again, he says this, Jesus doesn't just tell us where not to put our treasures. He also gives the best investment advice you'll ever hear. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Matthew 6.20 If you stopped reading too soon, you would have thought that Christ was against or store was against our storing up treasures for ourselves. No, he's all for it. The question is, is where are you storing up treasure for yourself? 
See, Jesus says, do not, do not store up treasure for yourself on earth, but command, store up treasure for yourself in heaven. Do it. Go for it with all of your person. Are you looking at that? Are you understanding what tr- the, the heaven means? I think we've all lost the great vision of what heaven will be like. We can't even begin to fathom it because no one is there, has been there and come back to tell us except for Jesus Christ when he stepped out of the riches of heaven to come down to earth. And then he goes back to even prepare a place for us that he's been doing for 2,000 years, which means that there are going to be greater joys and pleasures in heaven and in God's presence that we will possibly be able to comprehend or understand. Look at the Sermon on the Mount to give you an idea. For those who are peacemakers will be called sons of God. For those that are pure in heart will see God. I mean, there's, these are these pictures that we're going to see in heaven, that when we get to heaven, we shall see him, for, for we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now we see in a, a mirror, in a, like in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see him face to face. Everything, all these glories, all these earthly pleasures that we've been looking at now will be fully seen and experienced in eternity. And there'll be no boredom. There'll be no, no sorrow. It'll be everlasting joy that we can't even comprehend. We can't even begin to wrap our minds what God has prepared for those who love him, as Paul said. Paul just couldn't even come come up with words. And the same with the Apostle John as he's writing in the book of Revelation. He was overwhelmed even coming up with terms on how great heaven will be. And yet we are so busy just trying to build our earthly kingdoms. I mean, to me it's a little bit like, and it's... It's suburbia, but you have to have the perfect yard for whatever reason it is in suburbia. And that's where we have our kingdom. No weeds, green grass, and that's it. We're happy. And that some people look at eternity that way. If I just have green grass and nice, I'm fine. Heaven is much bigger. Much bigger than any thought we could ever have. And as C.S. Lewis said, we're too busy playing with mud pies. Playing around in mud puddles because we don't realize that there is a a vacation offered at sea to great understanding. So how do we enter the pathway to our real treasure? We are to lay up treasure for ourselves, but not on earth, but in heaven. Which means this, we have to be, we have to be stopping our preoccupations and their pitiful preoccupations. I mean, that's why I love when he's talking, in, as Jesus is talking, when he says, why are you anxious? I, I love how he ends it. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We have a lot of anxiety in our world today, do we not? We have a lot of anxiety in our lives. I mean, how many of us are always worrying? Worrying what tomorrow will hold, worrying when that bill will come in, worrying when that paycheck will clear, worrying where this is and that is. I mean, we have so much anxiety we don't know what to do with ourselves. I mean, we don't look toward the future with expectation, which means eager. See, we, we use these words wrongly. I've talked about this before. We, we say, oh, I'm anxious about tomorrow when we really mean eager. When we're saying, I'm eager about what's going to happen, I'm looking forward to it, hopefully. When you say, I'm anxious, I'm looking forward to it with worry. That's why Jesus is saying, do not be anxious. Don't be looking forward to worry. Place yourself in God because it's to be our daily bread. Remember that? What were the Israelites to do day in and day out when they were in their wilderness wanderings? They were to have the manna come down from heaven, and it was to be their daily bread. They weren't to collect any more than they needed, but what they needed for that day. And when they collected more than they needed, the next day it would have worms, maggots, and stink. It would rot. 
We're to be collecting our daily understanding of bread, getting the nourishment for that day and letting each day stand in and of itself. So we need to be stopping our preoccupation. We have many worries about what the future will hold, but that's where faith comes in. But for whatever reason, we like faith when we don't need it, but when we do need it, we don't like it. You know that? We talk about faith, and then it comes and we don't like it. Because we have to depend on something other than ourselves. We like saying we have faith when we can depend on ourselves and everything. Our bellies are full. Everything's paid off. Nothing's broken in the house. That's when we, oh, I have faith. No, you have comfort. It's different. Faith is looking forward expectantly and in trust. Comfort is looking at the here and now, finding rest. So we have to make sure that we understand. We have to be stopping our preoccupations. That's what Jesus wants for us. Secondly, we also must set proper priorities. Proper priorities. So Jesus even says here, and why are you anxious about clothing? Verse 28. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, yet even, I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, will you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek First, the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. John MacArthur comments on this. He says, the Greek word translated first in Matthew 6.33 means first in a line of more than one option. Of all the priorities of life, seeking God's kingdom is number one. It is doing what you can to promote God's rule over His creation. That includes seeking Christ's rule to be manifest in your life through righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14.17 you seek his kingdom when you long for the return of the king in his millennial glory to establish his kingdom on earth and to usher in his eternal kingdom. So we have to, to set the proper priorities, which means that we have to place God first. And here's some practical points of what you can do. And some of you are old pros, and you can teach me about this. And there's others that aren't so far along in their journey. But here's some practical suggestions. Set a budget. And place God at the priority, number one in the list of your budget. So set A budget. Number two, the next thing that you need to do is get out of debt. Get out of debt. Because it's like a millstone around your neck. Get out of debt. It prevents and hinders different ministries. Something I've learned in my own life that I've had to really deal with and wrestle with and say, I I need to make these changes. And some of you uh, right now, or some of us might feel you're just in that snowball effect where you're just overwhelmed, you have so much anxiety, too many poor choices, you haven't budgeted, you've just gone uh, all the time, hand to fist. But God, it's not wrong to plan. It's not wrong to plan. But it is wrong to rely more on the planning than it is on the Savior. So we... We are to plan and set a priorities and set God at the beginning of that priority. So we have that practical priority. There are other choices that we are faced with in the midst of life. I mean, we have education, profession, marriage, hosts of other things that either that will try to come in and crowd out the priority of God. But what do we seek first? What's the number one priority? Is it pleasure? Is it comfort? Is it money? Is it power? Is it fame? Is it prestige? Is it security? What's the number one goal in our life? Think about it. 
What are you motivated by? What are we motivated by? Or better yet, what is the first thing that we seek to which everything else is subservient? What is it? Ask yourself that question. See, I've encountered several people over the years who say that they believe and trust in Christ, but actions prove to be more of a revealer of the heart than words. And when faced with a difficult choice in life that somehow threatens their number one priority, God loses. They crumble. For example, this isn't just in finances, but this is just honoring God in all aspects of life. A young lady, for example, wants to follow Christ, but she also wants to be married. As the years go by, she begins to get nervous because there doesn't seem to be that many men around who are following Christ. The pool appears to be a bit thin. She begins to wonder, what if God doesn't want me to marry even though I really want to? She starts looking outside of the church at anyone who will pay her attention. She begins to compromise her faith, her integrity, and her purity, all because she believes the lie that God doesn't want what's best for her. And so the story goes in the lives of many different men and women. happens all the time. Are we willing to set God as the number one priority and that's the non-negotiable? No matter what life will throw at us, we will not compromise here. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So, So practical suggestions again to place God at everything and every decision. Let Him have the preeminence, the supremacy of going through the grid of the sieve of the Word of God. And then practical suggestions for other things, especially in finances, is setting a budget, doing all that you can to get rid of the debt. Don't live beyond your means. In our world today, everyone has been living beyond their means because of the credit card. You know, it's amazing to me that just a generation ago when you went out and you spent money, you didn't do anything else. You didn't go out anymore. (laughs) But yet people today think, ah, I can do that. Put it in the slice of little magic plastic genie. Put it in there. Living beyond our means. And I think that we're seeing in the, uh, the economy of today and what's going on financially within our world, I think, I, I'm not saying that, I mean, God is sovereign over it and God has definitely allowed this to happen and I believe it's to reveal the thoughts and the hearts and where people's priorities have been and to bring them back in conjunction or alignment with the Word of God because people have been living way beyond what the Bible says is right to do. And if you need some practical suggestions, maybe you should go to, uh, if, you, if you're on the internet, go to Dave Ramsey's webpage. He's got a great Christian ministry, some great resources, or, or Crown Financial Concepts. You can even tune in. There are some programs even on Moody Radio that have call-in and people can ask questions about. We have some in our church that are great, just great with finances. God has gifted them to help you put a budget together to handle those things. That's the body being the body. But don't live beyond your means. Live in such a way that God desires you to do. So set your priorities. Set proper priorities. And then next, seek personal purity. This is where we really look at Matthew 6.33 again. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That holiness of heart. That's what His righteousness is. That holiness of heart and purity of life, which God requires of those who profess to be subjects of that spiritual kingdom mentioned. Jesus is coming, the embodiment of God's perfect righteousness and holiness. And when He comes, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. That's what it is to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. To seek to embody the fruit of the Spirit that was seen in Christ. To live your life in the same way as He did. He sought God's kingdom and His life reflected that pursuit. Does ours. Does our life reflect 
what a Christ follower should be like. Are we seeking God first in all things? And remember, I said what, it's not that the treasure itself that is invaluable to, or valuable to our hearts, but it, what's the treasure? it's what the treasure gives us, and that's joy. If we seek God's treasure, then we get joy. That's the latter part of verse 33. And all these things will be added to you because we'll be content. We have to learn to be content with what we have, knowing that if we focus on God, if we focus on the eternal, we get the temporal. But if we focus on the temporal, we lose the eternal. So we have to put the, f- the focus on the eternal and then get the temporal thrown in. But if we focus on the temporal over the eternal, then we lose the eternal. We have to keep that in harmony. These things are the things mentioned above. Food, drink, clothing, etc. In other words, when we follow God's treasure map, we will see promised prosperity and all these things shall be added to you. Not prosperity in that God wants you to drive a Cadillac. Prosperity in that God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God will bless you when you honor Him. I have never seen a person who has honored God first live to regret it. God will prosper our way. He will act in our behalf because faith projects itself onto God as the dependent one and God delights when we do that. He delights when we do that. And whenever we follow God's treasure map, we will see promised prosperity. We will receive all of these things. It is when we seek first the eternal that we get the temporal. But if we put the temporal before the eternal, we lose the eternal, which is infinitely more valuable. Now, allow me to add one final thought before I close off here. And you can write this down in your notes. This isn't on the screen. You can write this down. Here are four notes about giving. I mean, we're looking at all of stewardship, but we also know that God expects us to give back to Him what is already His because we are stewards of what He has entrusted to our care. Number one, and this is it, it's a choice. It's a choice. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, the Apostle Paul writes by the Spirit to the church at Corinth. He says this, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. You determine in your heart, but you choose to give. Step out in faith. Do what God wants you to do in your giving. It's a choice. Number two, you're to give cheerfully. Cheerfully. That's why he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. Are you a cheerful giver? Sometimes people don't think those two go together. How do I give and yet do so cheerfully? Because you're recognizing that you are simply a steward of what God has entrusted to your, to your care. And you are projecting faith on him and saying, my delight is in you and in you alone. Also, give completely. Give completely. As the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10, when the Lord says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be found food in my house, and whereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down you a blessing until there is no more need. What you commit to give, do so completely. Don't hedge. Give it entirely. What you've committed yourself to do, do. And then lastly, here comes contentment. Contentment is a byproduct of the first three. When you, follow, when you give that, make that choice, when you do so cheerfully, when you do so completely, then God will give contentment. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous, in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, 
but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's finding your joy in God. If you, find, if you follow God's treasure map, you will find your joy. Because you will be projecting your treasure in eternity with him. And that's where fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore are. At the right hand of God where Christ is seated waiting for the day when everything will be laid in subjection at his feet as a footstool. All our joy will be there. Are you finding or are we finding our contentment in the Lord? Are we willing to see Christ's supremacy in our finances? Are we willing to seek Him first in all things in our life? Are we willing to follow God's great treasure map? Are we going to respond in faith? Are we willing to set the proper priorities and make the necessary changes to reflect that truth and to place ourselves under His Lordship? Don't wait. Do it today. Let Jesus Christ glorify Himself in your money to the praise of His great and glorious name. Let's pray. Father, we come into Your presence knowing... Many in this room have, have done righteously and rightly with their finances, and there's others that say, I've made it a big, giant mess. Lord, I pray that you might give us each hope. I'm so thankful for your word, that your word allows us to have hope and to rearrange the priorities and the pursuits of our life to fall in conjunction with your word. Lord, I pray that each one of us might have the courage and faith necessary to make these necessary changes to show that you are the Lord, not only of our just our verbiage and when we come to church, but you're the Lord of the entirety of our life. And we recognize that we are simply stewards that, go, that are going to be held to an account for every single thing you've entrusted to our care. Lord, may we be found to be faithful stewards. We repent of any wrong thing that we've done and how we've messed it up. And we are thankful for your grace that extends even to our acts of disobedience that we have done in the past or just failure to plan. And Lord, may we set your priorities as our own. May we place ourselves in alignment to that which your truth espouses and teaches us to do. And may your name receive great glory because of it. May we see your joy overflow unto us, Lord, as we joyously show the integrity and the sincerity of our hearts as we place ourselves into full submission to the one true Savior of the world. So Lord, glorify yourself in our midst. Help us to really live to give not only to you, but to others, so that our joy may be full. Glorify yourself within us. In Jesus' name, amen.